Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and thank you for joining us here on the program as we come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and our special edition of Tell Me Your Story, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. We are streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We also have these programs as podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and a whole lot of other locations on the Internet. Too numerous to mention at this particular point. We also have a video cast. You can actually watch these videos. I hope that you will uh, take the time to go to Tell Me Your Story on YouTube and uh, watch these videos and even subscribe. I would greatly appreciate that. That would be very nice uh, if you did that. And um, we also hope that if these programs resonate with you, uh, if uh, they touch a nerve, uh, maybe uh, tug a heartstring or... Uh, just are interesting to you and you'd like to be a part of the work that we're doing here, we would greatly appreciate any financial support that you can provide us. We do have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours. We also ask you to participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, where we ask you to spend time going within, listening to that still, small voice in that quiet, peaceful, calm place, and just Take it easy. We're, we're all in need of that, especially uh, as we move through uh, these very tumultuous uh, uh, days of summer and fall. Uh, I don't know if, if you're uh, dealing with uh, any kind of natural or man-made disasters around you, but all kinds of stuff is happening. So take that time to uh, put yourself at ease and at peace and find the answers that you're looking for. Our program today is uh, going back to... Uh, my early years, I was born in 1960, so I didn't uh, get to participate, I was going to say much, at all in what is referred to <laughs> as the sexual revolution. Well, our guest today is going to kind of take us back to those days in a book that he's written, a novel, that he is sharing with us. It's called Sex, a Love Story. Uh, it delivers intimate tales, an intimate tale, I should say, of fledgling romance. And uh, I am uh, very grateful uh, that we are able to have with us Jerome Gold. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Uh, this is uh, an interesting conversation we're going to have because obviously we we could sit here and we could certainly dialogue about the novel. I would encourage more people to go to Amazon, for example, and uh, order a copy of the book Sex uh, and, um, and 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 uh, uh, read, read what you've written, Sex, a Love Story. Uh, it almost seems, on the one hand, I, maybe on the surface, uh, uh, Jerome, uh, when you say Sex, a Love Story, uh, it's sort of uh, almost um, uh, redundant. And yet at the same time, I also know that there doesn't have to be love or a love story uh, involving sex. I'm curious as to how you, as uh, if I'm uh, correct on this, uh, your sort of foundations are in anthropology. You're an anthropologist. How this particular subject, and especially uh, taking us back to the uh, early days of the sexual revolution with these two young people, uh, how that came about? 
Um, I don't know that the story originated in anthropology. Of course, my, my studies in anthropology have affected my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the story came about actually uh, by accident. Well, to, to me, it was an accident. Um, when I was 18, I had a girlfriend. Uh, we were seniors in high school, and we were close. And like those kinds of relationships usually do, they, they eventually, we eventually parted. And 50-some years later, I got this phone call from her. She had tracked me down in Seattle. I was living in Seattle at the time. And uh, she just wanted somebody to talk to. Um, and she remembered she enjoyed talking with me. And uh, so we started talking about um, our lives together and then people we knew. And it was a series of phone calls and emails that went on for quite a long time, for about two years. And I started taking notes. I I kept a journal. I do keep a journal. I started taking notes in the journal. After a fairly short time, I realized that uh, my impulse in writing in the journal is um, I was getting away from uh, veracity as getting more into fiction. And I, I really... I would have to restrain myself to keep from doing that. In, in other words, the people I was writing about—I was writing about—were um, no longer true to life. They were true to my, more and more to my imagination, and so I just went with it. Um, it sounds easier than it was. It took me uh, two or three years to write the book, but uh, that's how it started. It just—it's um, just the way my mind works. You start with something that's. Uh, with a memory, say, and then it it, um, it goes from there, and then you're no longer dealing with the people you started with. Uh, other people's stories come in, pe- uh, stories I make up come in, to, all to develop the character or characters. Hmm. So. And this particular work uh, takes place what in the late eight, uh, not eighteen, nineteen fifties into nineteen sixties, correct? Yeah, it's from about 1960 to 62, just at the okay. very end of the Eisenhower era and the beginning of the Kennedy era. And that was sort of the beginning of uh, the the sexual revolution of sorts, was it not? Yeah, but, yeah, uh, we know that now. Yeah, uh, at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight being what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, now, uh, I have to say that I probably had my... Um, revolution, as it were, probably in my uh, mid, mid late thirties. Even though I I had been married f- before in in uh, early nineteen eighties, um, it was after my divorce that uh, things uh, really changed in that regard. Uh, in terms of the the and and we'll talk a little bit about this right now. In terms of the two characters, the two main characters. Um, they're, they're teenagers, what, uh, 16, 17, 18? Yeah, I think when they start, um, he's 17, she's 16. Um, their birthdays are in the same month in the, in the autumn. And so soon afterwards he turns, um, um, he turns 18, she turns 17. Yeah. Mm. That's that, when they start. Yeah. It, it, the, the book, the course of, of the book for the most part goes on for two years. And then, of course, later, late in the book, we jump, we jump ahead in time. Mm-hmm. In terms of the main message that you are looking to get across through this particular novel, 
wh what are you trying to say to the reader? Anything in particular or just to weave a story? Um, no, there is something in particular. And I, I'm not sure when I discovered this. I think this is a, I think the theme had been in my mind all along. Um, I, used, I used to work in a prison for juveniles. I was a counselor in a, for juveniles. And, and um, I, uh, I can't hear you. I can't hear you, Richard. No, go ahead. Continue. Uh, I'm just curious as to, uh, you know, um, this process that you went through that, that oh. brought this message out. Well, I used to work with uh, uh, most of the kids that I dealt with in, in the prison um, had been abused sexually or physically or both. Mm. And uh, if they were abused by their parents, nevertheless, they still loved their mm. parents, which, no matter which one was abusing them. They still loved them could not help it. And I suppose it's because uh, they're born with that. They're, they're born with a devotion to their mothers. I mean, she's a source of food. Um, and at least at first, the father's probably not beating him if he beats them later. Um, what, so what was that there was that fascination about love, uh, at least that kind of love. Um, and I carried that over into the, into the book but I went, where, I went where the book took me, and I discovered that, um, and for, for me, writing is, a kind of, is an act of discovery. And I discovered that uh, no matter what happens, if you, once you've loved somebody, that love never goes away entirely. It may be overlaid with all sorts of other things that, that have gotten in the way of the relationship, um, but it's always there. And under some circumstances, it, it can come back. So that's the thing. <laughs> I know, I know, too, that long relationships, I can speak uh, more secondhand, granted. My parents uh, just recently celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. My father turned 90 here in August. Mother will be uh, 87 in September. And I have no doubt that they both love each other still very much but i also believe that it has it has changed it is not the same as it was when they first met in their 20s before they started the family and it seems to me that there are those who uh, in a long-term relationship um they watch the emotions, I'll say, mellow, okay, as, as does fine wine, so to speak, using that old cliche-ish uh, analogy. And all of the sudden, one of them, uh, somehow a switch is flipped, and they want to go back to the passions and the intensity of 20, 30, 40 years ago, and if they can't get it, then usually there's a divorce. Hey, you know, it's unreconcilable differences because he or she can't give me what I want. And it just seems to me that it's, it, it's, it's looking at love in a very um, conditional way. And, and I, I'm curious as to uh, um, your thoughts, especially in regards to this couple, but maybe, maybe even in terms of your, if, if you feel uh, 
free enough and open enough to share, in your, even in your own relationship. You seem to have been married for quite a number of years as well, and I'm sure that your relationship with your wife has changed, it has grown, it has deepened, but it certainly doesn't have the same passion and intensity that it did when you first met. Uh, would I be fair in a, making that uh, assumption? Yeah, I, I think if uh, you look at my face on uh, on the monitor here, <laughs> <laughs> you would realize that I've, I've kind of been through the wars. <laughs> um, well, I think you're right. Yeah, sure. Uh, biologically, it, it, it can't sustain itself. Um, there's all this, especially dealing with teenagers, where the, the book starts. Um, there's all this hormonal rage at the same time. There's nothing they can't, they can uh, they can control to some extent if they want to. Um, I've met I've met kids who think that every time they get horny, they're supposed to do something about it. Uh, and that could be a problem for them. Um, it could be a problem for anybody. Yeah. Um, but over time, um, you just can't sustain that kind of uh, um, uh, sexual impulse or sexual activity. It, it deteriorates over time. I had a friend years ago who was quite a bit older than I was. And uh, I remember he was in his 80s and he told me that um, he f that the sexual urges had finally left him. And he said, good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome Gold is our guest here on the program, and we're talking about his latest work, which is entitled Sex, A Love Story. We hope you'll go to Amazon and pick up a copy of the book. We will we'll link to that page where you can order your own copy of the book. I think it'll be a, a fascinating read. I think it'll be a lot of fun as well. Um, and uh, we hope that you will stay with us here on the program as we, as we talk about uh, sex and love and all of the aspects of relationship uh, as it uh, pertains to our guest, uh, Jerome Gold. And I am your host, Richard Dugan, and we are here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I will tell you, Jerome, Jerome Gold, author of Sex, A Love Story, that uh, I'm 61. And when I was growing up in my late teens and 20s, my biggest issue, my biggest problem uh, when horny <laughs> or wanting to just have a girlfriend, period. Yeah. My problem was desperation. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, and I've heard this, I, as a matter of fact, I was told right away, I said, look, if you continue to come from a position of desperation, the girls, they will see it coming a mile away. So you need to calm down. <laughs> and as the phrase goes, let the universe work it out for you. The right person will come along at the right time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and here I am in my early 60s. And I don't know. I, I don't know when it happened for you, if it's happened for you. I don't want to make assumptions here. Um, but I've been through some changes in my life. And uh, quite honest, I'm not going to necessarily go to the point where saying, okay, uh, sex drive, good riddance per se. But I will say that my libido, it's like, I don't know where it went. And I'm expected to 
mm, 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 you know, to find it. And uh, I'm wondering, um, is this an, a problem? And uh, now this is kind of, I don't know if this is an area within anthropology that you have ever studied. Uh, but uh, do you think that this has been a problem down through the centuries as people have gotten older? Now, granted, people didn't live that long, two, three, four, five, six hundred years ago, you know. So they were still in their prime usually when they died. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you still had that. You still had that situation for those who did. And uh, I, I just find that our society is so, and I'm not going to criticize our society for being so sexualized. I mean, we see it television and movies and so forth. It's always been that way. And, and I'm wondering um, if you think that maybe that has been a detriment from that standpoint to finding real love uh, and a real love story for someone and some real meaning. Uh, well, what are your thoughts in that regard? To the extent that we have volition, I mean, that that the society we, we happen to live in, uh, I'm looking at it as an anthropologist now, mm -hmm. that the society as we, ha we happen to live in uh, allows us to uh, to act on our own volition. <clears throat> um, we probably get into more trouble that way. Uh, I, I've just been writing about, or recently been writing about uh, a society where um, um, it, it's a Muslim society, and so men who of certain wealth are allowed to have uh, up to four wives. Mm -hmm. um, as they get older, the wives get younger, ah. um, and that that could be a problem because um, uh, I, not that much writing has been done about the wives, but uh, they have their own desires and needs too. Sure. And so I, this one society where. Uh, is an example of, uh, uh, well, first, the man, her husband, uh, did not want to, uh, did not want another wife. He already had two, and he was under pressure because of his wealth. Relatives are telling him to take a third wife. He really didn't want a third wife, and his first wife, who was his, uh, uh, who was his closest companion as well, did not want him to take another wife, but he finally did, and it didn't work out. And she, the third wife uh, eventually took a, a young lover about her own age, and uh, it was very frustrating for the man. I mean, uh, um, it, it was a, a humiliation, humiliation for him. But also, he just didn't feel that close to her. Um, um, so that could be a problem where one one person. Uh, say the man takes a young wife and she has her own libido, he has his libido, and there's a mismatch. Maybe at first in the relationship there isn't, but soon enough there will be a mismatch. So um, this is, I'm in my second marriage. We've been married for about 16 years now. And both my marriages were women of around my own age. I think that works out pretty well mm -hmm. when you... When, um, it, it, it turns to, if it's successful, I think it turns to companionship as you get older. I had a friend, uh, when I was in my 20s, I had a, a, a woman friend, she was in her 20s, and she was, uh, she wanted to get married, and she, there were a couple men she had in mind, and uh, one was older and one was younger, and she just, and she turned it that way, whether she wanted that, that kind of sexual intensity that she loved, or whether she wanted companionship that she knew would last. Um, she finally wound up marrying um, 
a third person who was neither one of them. No. You know, you touched upon something that I want to talk about as we move forward here. Uh, you brought it up in the context of, of the Muslim faith. And I want to expand on that just a little bit as we continue here. We're talking with Jerome Gold, author of Sex, A Love Story. We hope you'll get a copy of it at Amazon. Uh, I'm curious, is there a particular website that you would recommend people go to if they're interested? And they say, read uh, Sex, A Love Story. Uh, that would maybe be beneficial for them if they were curious and wanted to continue um, maybe, I don't know, investigating the subject matter, not necessarily the fictional characters, because those are yours. Uh, but uh, in terms of maybe continuing on, is there any, any place? And if not, that's fine, too. Well, you could, you could find these books on Amazon. There's particular books, uh, a particular author that, that stuck in my mind. Ever since I read her, Anais Nin, um, I think some people pronounce Anais Nin, mm -hmm. um, who wrote a series of diaries that was very, or had a series of diaries published in the 70s that were very popular. And she also wrote some erotica. Um, um, one of the books is called Delta of Venus, the erotica. Um, she had a long-term relationship with Henry Miller, uh, the American author. Um, and she wrote about that too. What makes her books better than most erotica, for my taste at least, is that she also deals with the emotional parts. Mm -hmm. um, those are, are more important uh, for her, and as they are for me. Um, so I would recommend people read Anais Nin if they're if they're interested in in the uh, emotional aspects of sexuality. Um, I know that's and that's brought up quite often to teenagers in that respect that, you know, don't just go out there and have frivolous, you know, you know there are emotions involved. And I mean, they lay out the whole thing, you know, for the teenager. And uh, of course, in some instances, they'll pressure and wait until marriage and all that. And I don't know which is better or worse, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, and we hope that you will stay with us as we continue talking with Jerome Gold. He is the author of Sex, A Love Story, and uh, we're talking about a lot of different things. What area of anthropology was your main focus? Because I know it's a big, big area. Yeah, there's, in, in the United States, at least, there's four different aspects of anthropology. Uh, linguistics, social or cultural anthropology, archaeology, and physical anthropology. I think probably most people, when they, when they think about anthropology, are, are really thinking about the physical anthropology. But I was in social anthropology, so my subjects were live people. I, I, I went I went overseas to uh, to live for a while with uh, in some villages and on an island. Um, and and my topic, what I was mainly interested in was human migration, modern human migration, mm -hmm. people coming into the island, people leaving the island. Yeah, it is rather interesting uh, where people migrate to and why. You know, um, obviously in our day and age, a lot of people are migrating out of their home countries because of violence. Um, a lot, and, and you sometimes wonder why people migrate, for example, in the United States. Uh, some people will do it for political reasons, uh, which is kind of an interesting reason to move but or migrate to someplace else. But, hey, you know, there are all kinds of reasons for doing it. It's fascinating. 
I wanted to touch upon something you brought up in the Muslim faith, and I'm sure uh, in the Middle Eastern uh, um, uh, lifestyle, if you will, Saudi Arabia, for example, as well, um, where the men can have multiple wives, again, depending upon the wealth, up to maybe four wives. In the United States, that kind of relationship, and it here in the United States, it can work both ways, it's referred to as polyamory. I'm curious as to what you have found uh, in your studies. And again, I understand your main th- emphasis was, on, uh, was my, on migration. But I'm just curious as to whether or not that was something that has been around. Uh, I would think so. And here's the other reason I, I, I raise this, because if you were to take a look, for example, at the Genesis story in the Old Testament, where it talks about Adam and Eve, and then there's Cain and Abel. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. And then you have that long lineage. It's like, wait a minute, hold it, stop. Where did these people come from? How did these people get created? Who were their parents? Uh, and it doesn't say. It just doesn't say. And it's like, what, did they just miraculously appear? Maybe maybe they did. I, you know, I mean, there's obviously speculation uh, that uh, even from the biblical texts that <laughs> that we've been visited by aliens and maybe they were deposited here. Who knows? But what are your thoughts as an anthropologist on the impact, pros and cons, if you will, of a, of a lifestyle like that, uh, that um, may or may not work? Um, looking at it from the outside, um, uh, if a man takes more than, more than one wife, we say he's polygamous. If a woman takes more than one husband, she's, we say he's, she's polyandrous. But you use the term uh, polyamorous or poly... What was um, the term you used? Yeah, uh, it's something along those... Not so much polyamorous, but... Um, oh, boy. Anyway, you have multiple partners. But males can have multiple partners. Females can have multiple partners. And in this day and age, when you've got uh, all of these new splits in gender... Uh, you know, it's not just two anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, you know, and you could have a male lover and a female lover or partner, however you want to phrase that, or multiple thereof. Uh, and, and we're not talking here about an ongoing orgy. That is, that is not what these relationships are necessarily on the surface, as I have read about. Right. Uh, that's not what they're about, per se. At the same time, um, you know, uh, usually only two, eh, you know, uh, sleep together, that kind of thing. Maybe for procreation, maybe for pleasure. Do you think yeah. that those kinds of uh, um, uh, poly, uh, polyamorous uh, relationships are are uh, or can be beneficial to a society, or do you think they're detrimental to the traditional values that some people in this country hold uh, of a traditional family, mother, father, and children, that they say is undermining the bedrock of society? Well, most societies uh, are not officially polyamorous. (laughs) No, that's true. And uh, probably all societies are unofficially polyamorous, but not constantly. So... 
in the place where, where I was doing my field work, um, I had a, a really good informant. Uh, he spoke uh, he spoke really good English, so I didn't have to learn as much as I should have the local language. Uh, but we had better conversations than if, than if I had even tried to learn the local language uh, more. Um, so throughout his marriage, and he'd been married uh, 30-some years by that time. Throughout his marriage, occasionally he would have another relationship. Uh, could be male, could be female. Um, uh, but he officially, of course, he didn't. I mean, he wasn't going to talk about part of that society's ethos was that you can do those things, both men and women could do those things, but you didn't talk about it. And you didn't appear in public with anybody but your spouse. Uh, that is, I, I don't mean in public, but if you went out to a restaurant, it, it should be with your spouse or for business. Um, I think that's pretty common in the United States, too. I think there are many people who who uh, have or have had uh, extramarital relationships, but they, they, they get by with it. Um, as far as... Uh, uh, our, our views about gender identity, I found that the best way for me to think about it uh, between heterosexuality and homosexuality, not dealing with uh, trans, um, is that it's a continuum. So that my friend, for example, um, I think he told me about two homosexual affairs he had had over 30 years. They're not really affairs, but more encounters apparently. And, um, but he still regarded himself as heterosexual. And if most of his activity throughout his life was heterosexual, how are we to regard him? Those, it, there are just ways for us to think about it. The activity itself is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but the labels are just ways for us to think about it. Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, and to give value to one thing over another. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question or not. Well, I, I do know, too, uh, that, that, um, and I've often thought about this anthropology, and I think I think oftentimes of how we, uh, when it comes to things we don't fully understand, and we and they're in, they're intangible, like God. We tend to, and we've been doing this for centuries. We anthropomorphize uh, the deity. Yeah. We give it a physical form. Right. When in fact, uh, most people. Uh, who probably most people who listen to this program, myself included, uh, the deity, the divine power, the divine source, the force, whatever you want to call it, has no form. Uh, unless you want to consider uh, us as that form in physical, as, for example, in the Bible, you know, it says that we were made in the image of God, in the image and likeness thereof. But I have to wonder, are they really speaking about the physical body or are they talking about the essence, that which animates the human body? Um, I think um, a lot of it has to do with, with human relationships. Um, I actually had a pretty in-depth conversation uh, about this with, with uh, another friend just within the last week um, talking about conceptions of God. And uh, she's Catholic. Um, I'm not religious at all. But we, she said that for her, 
uh, oh, she, our daughter. We were talking about our daughter. Do- she's my my first wife. Mm-hmm. We were talking about our our daughter and uh, on her on her perception of uh, or conception of God, um, and that my ex wife said that uh, for herself, uh, God was love, and I agree with that. Uh, but it's not it's not love as a seventeen year old would define it. It's love as a seventy something year old would define it. <laughs> Um, it, it's a it's a kind of spirituality that does not have form, um, and yet you know it's there because you can feel it so strongly sometimes. So uh, some people may call it uh, an aspect of, of uh, superstition or paranormal, or, and yet the feeling is so powerful that you kn- you know that there's something there. That doesn't mean that something is making decisions. It's just there. We're talking with Jerome Gold, author of Sex, A Love Story, um, and I, I myself, I, it's, 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 inter- it's an interesting dynamic, Jerome. I don't know if, if maybe you feel the same way that I do uh, in that, I guess I'm in that latter phase that you talk about where I, I, just, I just want to connect and be in the moment. I don't want to try to achieve anything. I guess I've gotten up to the point in my life where in spite of doing all of these interviews and all of these programs and doing all this production and working with all of the people that I work with to create all of the stuff that people hear and sometimes see since I also edit video now, um, there isn't really an achievement in that. There's no end goal per se. But at the same time, it's like I, I, my, my, I want a relationship that is just here now. Can we not try to make something happen? You know, um, you know, and uh, I realize that's a frustration for some folks. Uh, another frustration is when, whenever we have to uh, uh, take a pause here to remind people what they're listening to. And it's tell me your story. New paradigms for a new world. And we're talking with Jerome Gold, author of uh, Sex, a Love Story, here on uh, uh, this fine station. It's also podcast. It's also videocast. Go to YouTube and go to Tell Me Your Story. Just look for the guy with the hat. And I'm Richard Dugan, your host, as always. And uh, we're so grateful that we are uh, talking with uh, an anthropologist, a, a, a socio-anthropologist. Is that a right uh, term? Social. Social, social, not socio. That would put you in a different category, I think. Um, I'm sure there's an anthropologist for that, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but you don't dig in the dirt. Um, and I'm sure you're happy about that, right? Actually, uh past few years, I've kind of regretted not having uh, studied a little more of archaeology. Oh. I studied when I when I was... Uh, Preparing for my exams at school, I got my master's degree at University of Montana. We had to know something about all the different categories of, uh, of anthropology. And so I did study some archaeology, but I never did go out on a dig. I had friends who did, and I kind of regretted Now I kind of regret not having done it. Um, I guess there's ways of doing it uh, now, but now I don't know if I want to spend uh, uh, two weeks in the summer sun in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) 
not the summer sun we're getting right now. Let me tell you, right. uh, it's <laughs> it is uh, just a little too intense for uh, uh, for for. I mean, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, so I know what intense heat is. Yeah. Um, I will never forget my uh, 30th birthday, 30 years ago, 31 years ago. I was bicycling in Phoenix back uh, to and from work in the afternoon. I got off at noon, and there I am bicycling home. I did not know what the temperature was. And I got home, and I found out that it was 122 degrees in the shade. And uh, so, um, fortunately, a few years later, I... Uh, I was able to move about 16 years later, uh, 45, 46 summers in Phoenix. That was 45 summers too many. But be that as it may, uh, we're certainly grateful and thankful that uh, you are here with us talking about some of these uh, different subjects. I'm curious, uh, from a, a, um, an archaeological standpoint, are, are there, are there um, archaeological finds that sort of that, that tend to support some of your uh, research study and or conclusions uh, in your field of anthropology? Well, I haven't really kept up with archaeology, but um, anthropology as a whole, uh, including all the subdisciplines, has developed a small body of theory that, that pretty much uh, affects the way we think about everything we do, whether you're a um, um, physical anthropologist or archaeologist archaeologists or cultural anthropologists. Um, so, yeah, uh, we kind of support each other. We argue with each other and we support each other regardless of, of uh, what sub-discipline we're in. But at the same time, I would say theory will get you only so far and then it, and then it establishes limits. And uh, I think right now, especially in social anthropology, we're stuck within certain limits that we should be breaking out of, breaking through. But you'd have to fight the establishment on that. And so you probably wouldn't be able to. I mean, there are people who write, there are anthropologists who write papers about really interesting things, knowing they can never get them published officially. There's no journalist going to publish them because there's no body of theory to support it. But at the same time, this is what they found doing field work. And so there's some of us who just share these, these ideas, um, but it's all informal, unofficial. So again, I don't know if I've answered your question, but this is, some, this is something I've thought about for quite a while. That the way um, you grew up in a certain discipline, say it's an academic discipline, you grew up in a certain discipline and it, it really carries you into realms that you never thought you never imagined existed, but at the same time, it imposes limits on, on both the way you think and how you express it, and that can be pretty frustrating. How important do you see the these various elements uh, and studies of anthropology to uh, our civilization's future? Well, um, especially as, as we explore, whether it's space or inner space, um, we have to prepare ourselves, if we're not already prepared, 
to encounter things we didn't anticipate. And we have to, we have to force ourselves to be open-minded. There, there's ways of doing this. Um, but it all, it all requires effort. And I think most of us are not willing to do that. But most of us are not going to have the opportunity to encounter something we didn't anticipate. Most of us like to live within our comfort zones. Yeah. Um, but for those who want to explore, um, anthropology is a good start, especially especially anthropology as it's taught to undergraduates, to, to people going for their bachelor's degrees, uh, where it's all, all new to them. Um, but they have to be, if they continue beyond that, to go for graduate degrees or, or be, become professionals, it's really to their own advantage um, as explorers mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, to, to force themselves to open their minds. And that's, as, you, as you get older, of course, it becomes increasingly difficult. Would you uh, would you say that there is a, a connection, if not a parallel, between anthropology and history, and the adage that unless we uh, uh, learn from history, uh, we are doomed to repeat it? Well, that's the way I think. But I got my undergraduate degree in history, not anthropology, <laughs> <laughs> and so so my mentor uh, at the University of Montana, he. Uh, he who also got his undergraduate degree in history. He said, he pointed out to me that not everybody thinks like he and I do. Um, that we're, we think in terms, we think in, when we think about anthropology, we think in terms of how things happen historically as well. But many anthropologists don't think that way. They're, they're kind of anti-history or just don't think about uh, historicism at all. So, but for my thinking, it's a, a real advantage. You know, now that, um, I don't have to work for a living. A lot of my reading is, uh, I don't read much anthropology, but I do read increasingly uh, a lot of history. So. Would you say that uh, as a species uh, on the whole, that we've actually kind of done a poor job of learning from history? Uh, I, I don't know if it's... Uh, um, if it re- relates to our species, certainly as Americans, we've done a poor job of it, be- probably because our history is so short compared to other countries. Um, I've spent a f- not a lot of time, but some time in Europe. And I have friends in, say, Italy and Germany, and uh, they're much more aware of what happened in, in their countries uh, 1,000, 1,500 years ago, especially in Italy. Um, and I don't know if you've been to Rome or not, but Rome, um, modern buildings uh, side by side with 2,000-year-old ruins. Um, they just take that for granted. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, uh, it's really kind of inspiring. So I, I don't know about it. So again, I don't know about it as a species, but certainly as a, a, a country. We've, we've not done well learning from our history. And for one thing, we're poorly educated in history. We're poorly educated at all, I think. But uh, we're poorly educated in history. Well, I remember. There were years where, where uh, at least in Washington State, where I lived, 
there were several years in which history was not taught in public schools because um, the teaching of history was under some political pressure. So the schools just stopped teaching it. Wow. Wow. Uh, kind of need to know where we come from in order to know maybe where we're going sometimes, I would think. And, of course, the biggest dilemma when it comes to history, Jerome, is who tells the story? And obviously, the, when there are conflicts, it's usually the victor. Until you uh, get down the road uh, many, many decades or centuries, and then artifacts are dug up. I didn't know this. I don't know if you knew this or not. But based upon an article that I read, and I'm, I'm going uh, to stand by the veracity of the article until something comes along to say different, there was actually, you know, people complain about the propaganda wars that we've been going through in the last uh, uh, six, seven, eight, nine years, and even during the Cold War. That's nothing. I was reading this article that talked about the propaganda war between the pro and anti-Catholic uh, groups back in the second and third centuries. And well, we know who won the war. Uh, it was the, the Catholic Church. Uh, but there was a propaganda war, a misinformation, uh, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, uh, on both sides, I'm sure. And uh, so this is not this is nothing new, and yet we we continue to do this. We continue to listen, and uh, we <laughs> we continue to take this stuff in, and it it can drive uh, it can drive folks crazy. Jerome uh, Jerome Gold is my guest. His book is. Sex, a love story available through Amazon, Amazon.com. We will be linked so that people can uh, uh, go and pick up a copy of your book and, and find out more about the work that you're doing. We also hope that you will uh, listen to the podcasts on the various outlets, including SoundCloud and Spotify and iHeartRadio, Amazon Music and other outlets, as well as YouTube, where you can watch these programs uh, on YouTube channel, Tell Me Your Story. Just Look for the guy with the hat. Not hard to find. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I uh, thank you so much for being with us here on the program. It's uh, uh, really nice to have you with us. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to speak with someone who has been studying, uh, I guess, the, I hope the right word here, I'm choosing the right vernacular here, who's been studying our society. How far back? Uh, in uh, social anthropology, ha do you go? What's your what's the, the the date range, the year range? Well, social anthropology is, is interested. Our focus is on on living people, oh, okay. living society. So, um, if I when I uh, am preparing to to study a society, I read everything I can I can get on the society. If uh, if they're more or less modern and they have writers and artists and all i i read their literature <clears throat> i read their his uh the history of the societies um so um i just try to immerse myself in it as much as much as as much as possible before i even get there hmm. what was it about anthropology and i've obviously specifically social anthropology that intrigued you so much that that became your main your, your major, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, well, I loved history, but I didn't see myself spending my career in a library or in libraries. I wanted more adventure in my life. And I just discovered anthropology. I took a class in it when I was an undergraduate, and uh, it intrigued me. And then, uh, so after I got my uh, 
after I graduated from history, I just switched to anthropology. Um, what was best for me at that time, what was best about anthropology is that you could do anything you wanted and call it anthropology. <laughs> you could study anything you wanted <laughs> or study a society in, in, uh, in a particular way. At the time, I was interested in social conflict, and I could do that. Uh, but but uh, in studying uh, my master's degree, my master's thesis was uh, on social conflict, not a particular one, uh, within the United States. And uh, so... I, I dealt with the uh, concept of ethnicity because that was part of it, the way people saw themselves as an as a ethnic group apart from other ethnic groups. And I have also had to deal with social class. Um, and then uh, political, I dealt with propaganda. And dealt with a lot. It was a big thesis. Uh, for a master's thesis, you usually think of something maybe 100 pages long, but mine was 450 pages. <laughs> <laughs> My master's thesis was, was longer than my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've known a number of people uh, who have gone after their PhDs in particular. I was actually privileged to sit in on uh, that um, the presentation of the thesis and the uh, I, be I believe it's called a refutation, I believe, uh, of of the thesis by the mentors that. You know, they would right. go to to help to write it, you know, to guide them along as they wrote it. Yeah, we just call it oral exams. Oral exam. Yeah. yeah. I, I just found that process fascinating. I have to say that I feel as though I should have a Ph.D. Uh, in something. I don't know what, maybe comparative studies just simply because of not only all of the diverse guests that I've had on this program, but all of the diverse guests that have been on all of the programs, the th literally thousands of programs that I have produced at different stations over the past 40 plus years that I've been doing this work. Uh, you know, and it, the, the guest, the lineup, uh, you know, I can't even name drop because there are just too many. But it's, it's just uh, uh, fascinating conversations that we have, just like we have here and we're having here with you right now, Jerome Gold, for uh, conversations regarding uh, talking about uh, relationships and our our, our sex drives and, and I've even heard it said and I don't know if we can touch upon this a little bit if, if you've ever studied this aspect of it I was taking uh, a uh, I was in a, a personal growth program but they had these wonderful little booster shots every month on a Monday night we'd go to a resort and we'd meet in a ba banquet room and and uh, the the facilitator who founded the the program we talk about a myriad of different spiritual and esoteric, uh, uh, metaphysical topics. Um, and one of the things he brought up, which I found so fascinating, he says, if you look around, and then, of course, in your minds, I look around, let's say at um, the skyline of your city. Uh, or maybe even from the space station looking down on the lights at nighttime of the big cities. Everything that has been created uh, was created from sexual energy, not sex necessarily, but sexual energy. I, I Again, I don't know if this is even anywhere near your wheelhouse or if you have any thoughts on, on that construct or not. Um, I do, but it's not from an academic or, or an anthropological point of view. It's um, some, something I've noticed uh, uh, and I've read about that other writers uh, have experienced it. Um, 
when they're uh, when they're creating, when they're writing, uh, especially if it's a if it's a long work, um, their sexual energy seems to go down. Uh, when they finish their project, it shoots right back up. Uh, so I think I think that I think creation is uh, is uh, has its roots in sexuality, or well, I, sexual energy is probably a better term. Mm-hmm. I don't think it matters at all what direction you're going sexually. Yeah, um, it, and- is, it is just that, that energy, and I, I think that that's so. I I think also there are other things that get in the way, um, or, or, or that have the roots in sexual energy. I think. In, um, friends of mine who uh, who teach writing or teach uh, well teach writing don't write while they're teaching. There, I'm sure there are other people that I don't know who can write while they're teaching. But all that I know, um, if they're going to get their writing done, it has to be in the summer when they're not teaching. And I've been told that it's the same energy that goes into teaching that that goes into writing. Yeah. I've never I've never taught writing, so I can't speak from experience. But I've been told that a number of times by different by different people. Well, I do know that I love teaching what I know. Obviously, it's broadcasting, uh, production, those kinds of things. I've had some wonderful stints back in the '80s and '90s, uh, standing in front of a classroom and sharing sharing just what I know. Uh, I would never share what I don't know because that's much more difficult. <laughs> but uh, it's such a thrill. It is so energizing. And I know that that comes from that same place, that same space, that same kind of energy. And uh, it's, it, it truly is amazing when we start looking at, the, at, at it from that standpoint. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we need more or less human beings on the planet. Uh, I, I won't get into that conversation, but I will say that when we begin to recognize how things are created, and it doesn't matter what it is, uh, whether it's writing, whether it's a building, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, that's, that's the energy that's being generated that's, that's, that's coming up. And it's, to me, I think it's, uh, I think it's important for us to recognize. And certainly a lot of the ancient wisdom teachings talk a great deal about that from around the world and throughout the centuries. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think creation is what it is. And it's, uh, and it, uh, it does have its roots in, uh, in sex. Yeah. Not sexual activity necessarily, right. but to drive for sex. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you about your uh, your own personal background in regards to uh, the philosophy that you were born and you were raised into as you grew up. And if that's something that has held or as you have uh, moved through your life that you have found that it maybe was wanting and you wanted more or man, that's just fine. I'll stick here because I'm really focused on the philosophy, so to speak, of anthropology, social anthropology. Um, I think that I, that I, the way I think, the values I have, I got from my father, and I don't think I've gotten much away from it. Um, I mean, there were I had my period of rebellion as an adolescent, mm-hmm. part of that's in, in the book. Um, but especially, 
say after I got into my 30s and I began, I had enough age, enough years behind me where I could start to reflect a little bit. Um, I, I realized that um, a lot of what was important to him is important to me. And a lot of the values we place on what's happening in the world, uh, at least the way we perceive it, uh, the way he thought is the way I think. And it isn't that I consciously did that. It's just the way it happened. So um, my father was, uh, nowadays we would say a liberal, but he, I don't think that term was used in the same way then when he was young. My father was born in 1916. Ah. Um, so, um, but certainly to the left of center, but at the same time, uh, when it came down for him, when it came down to finance, he was pretty conservative as we would use that term today. Mm -hmm. And so am I. Um, sometimes you, you have to violate, uh, in my opinion now, sometimes you have to violate your own values for a greater good as, as you perceive it. Um, but that's just part of life. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, was it bills before Congress now, or maybe they've that uh, Schumer has been working so hard to get passed. You're talking about the infrastructure bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, it, it, but it does violate my 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 sense of fiscal propriety. What's the word? Uh, propriety. Yeah, propriety. Yeah. And I can see that. Honestly, I can see that because already so much money has already been spent on so many other things, including a lot of the stimulus checks that have gone out over the last 18 months or so uh, and so forth. Uh, I mean, uh, I heard a number the other day that our national debt is now approaching, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, and if you know, if not, that's fine. I think they said it was close to forty trillion dollars. I have no idea. You know, uh, but I know it's a lot. At the same time, I remember back in the seventies, I kept hearing people talking about how, oh no, debt is good. We need to be in debt, and this and that. And I'm thinking, really? You know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Back in the seventies, there's a Democrats talking that way. And until Biden became president, it was the Republicans talking that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, okay, folks, we're in debt up to our uh, beyond our eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's just the way that it is. Uh, you know, uh, I, it's never going to get paid off. I don't see that happening. But let me ask you, uh, as we wrap up our program together here, uh, as as just a citizen of America, of the planet, as well as an anthropologist and the study that you do in social anthropology and other areas of, of your interest, I'm curious, are you optimistic about our future as a country, as well as as a species for the future? As a country, um I don't think we will be the same as we were before <clears throat> Donald Trump and before COVID. Um, so the idea that everything's going to go back to normal, however we want to define it, we're not going to go back to normal. Um, uh, COVID itself uh, or, or 
what we know about viruses now and, mm -hmm. and how it has affected how they have affected us will not allow that so i don't know about optimism but i know it's going to be different and i i, I couldn't tell you how but i'm certain it's going to be different um, as a species well um a million years from now what will we be as a species i mean it, it to me it's not a matter of uh of uh, will we exist or not uh but what will we what will we what will we have changed into mm. because we're not going to be human as we know it now a million years ago we were not human as we know it now, as we know humans uh, so i one of my books um is in a time capsule uh supposed to be time capsules and uh a digital time capsule mm. uh it's uh, held by amazon uh along with other particular other books it's, it's held by amazon 350 years from now the castle's supposed to be opened well that's assuming that Am it's amazon's around or has the successor <laughs> <laughs> it's assuming that the that the capsule uh, uh even exists then but assuming all that yeah what will people, how will people think 350 years from now, yeah. 350 years ago? So what was that? Say 20, say 2000, say 1650, late 1600s. Um, we, we think we can sometimes think like, uh, like them, but we don't know. Um, certainly the, the world they lived in was a lot different from ours. And so I assume that, uh, that's my historicism coming in again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I assume that 350 years from now, um, what will it all mean to them now? The values I I, I, uh, I placed in my book is a, a social commentary. Um, the values I placed there uh, probably could be taken in, in the inverse by people with different values. Um, it doesn't mean that what I put into it is what they're going to get out of it. Yeah. So that, that's a, a long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have 16 books, and uh, folks can get any one of those, I'm sure, through Amazon. I think one of the most uh, fascinating things, and I, I sort of made a misstatement uh, in one program where I was talking about how, you know, a, a thousand years from now, what the heck difference is it going to make? Well, but the things that we do today are going to determine what things will be in 10,000 years. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it kind of goes back to sort of that butterfly effect. And we can't see into the future. It would be great if we could, if we had that 2020 vision. Uh, but um, uh, you and I are here right now because of everything that everybody has done over the last thousands and thousands of years. If they hadn't done what they had done... We wouldn't be sitting here talking. We wouldn't be having this conversation. You wouldn't have written the book that we're talking about, and the list goes on. So it, it's like, on the one hand, yeah, it's not going to make any difference in the grand scheme of things, but the reality is that if uh, humanity does manage to survive another 1,000, 10,000, or million years, it's, uh, it's going to be um, on the shoulders of every single human being who has come before because we all tend to lay that brick so to speak on that metaphorical wall uh, you know and that kind of thing here's a 
I agree with you. Here's another way of thinking of it that can bring it closer to home for some people. Mm -hmm. um, much of the world accepts reincarnation as a fact. Mm -hmm. That if that's true, if there is reincarnation, that then I'll die, but I'll come back sometime. The decisions I make today are going to affect whoever I am in another life. So we're stuck with ourselves. We, so we, really, we should be treating ourselves better. We can, another way of looking at it is what do we want for our children? But that argument doesn't seem to hold much water with an awful lot of people. It makes me wonder how they think of their children or if they think of their children. But the reincarnation thing is that if, if you accept that, and of course, most Americans probably won't, although many Americans do, no, I think I it's thought. changing. I think it's changing. Yeah. Um, then uh, if we destroy our environment, that's, that's the environment we're, we're going to be born into at a future time. It's uh, an uneasy thought. Uh, too many science fiction movies that <laughs> I have seen, the post-apocalyptic era, if you will. Uh, not very pretty. Uh, and um, it's 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 kind of uh, sort of depressing, and I I try to keep a an optimistic perspective that we're going to do better over time, we're going to make uh, some of the right decisions, and uh, you know and we're going to survive, uh, but you know what? Only time will tell, and uh, you know that's all we can do is wait for time to uh, pass and see. See where we are tomorrow and the next day and the year and, and on and on and on into the next millennium. So we'll just um, we'll just keep working, keep doing what we're doing. I think that's really what we have to stay focused on is what we're doing. And I thank you for doing what you have done and sharing with us both in the work that you have done through social anthropology, but also through the book uh, Sex, A Love Story. Now, as I said, you have 16 other books. Uh, are most of the, are, uh, are, are a number of them novels or many of them uh, dealing with some of the subject matter maybe that we've talked about on the program today? Both. Oh, okay. Both. So it's a mixture. Wonderful. Yeah. So they'll get a great mixture of uh, reading uh, from... Uh, from Jerome Gold. Jerome Gold. Go to Amazon.com, and I'm sure that they can type that in, and it'll bring up most of the books that you have uh, that you have put out. and uh, And we thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you very much for having me, Richard. I do have three final questions that I do like to ask my guests before we uh, conclude our program, <clears throat> and uh, you may have answered them to some degree during the interview, but I like to ask them directly. Uh, but before I do. I need to let you know that uh, you are listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here uh, on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., as well as Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. We stream live at those times at richarddugan.com, and the podcasts for these programs are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And we are also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. I hope that you will. And subscribe to both the podcasts as well as the videocast so that each time I post a new one, you will be notified and you can listen to uh, more interesting conversations with our guests. We also hope that you can support us financially through our PayPal account 
You, all you have to do is go to PayPal and you want to send money, we would greatly appreciate it. Just use Richard at RichardDugan.com. And we do that for your security as well as ours. And please participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Spend that time listening to that still small voice in that quiet, peaceful, calm place and get that guidance, that inspiration, that encouragement, uh, gentle speak, if you will, to just kind of soothe you through some of the rough spots in your day. And uh, then you can come back out and and, and just face the day uh, with a whole new perspective uh, on that day. So with that being said, uh, the three questions that I like to pose to my guests are, number one, who is Jerome Gold? Woof. <laughs> in, in five words or less, huh? <sighs> I'm somebody who... Uh, I've probably spent most, certainly my adult life, in trying to figure out how things work, um, how in, in, in the human realm, how, how, how and why we do what we do. Um, so I think I said earlier that for me, writing is an act of discovery. And I think that's, that's my vehicle for trying to figure out how things work. Um, what's your next question? <laughs> next question. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve with the work that you are doing now? I, I want to uh, stimulate people through uh, most, most of my writing recently is fiction, although I will be, I expect to be doing more nonfiction, but whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I hope to stimulate people to uh, want to think about what they are doing and if that's what they want to do. Um, and two, um, I hope I hope to stimulate people to feel things about what they are doing and, and what the people around them are doing. Mm. I think intellect apart from uh, emotion is not going to get us very far. And emotion apart from intellect is going to, would be even worse. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, um, so I try to, to write in a sense, not, I'm not so much interested in conveying my thoughts. Well, I am interested in conveying my thoughts, but in such a way as to stimulate, stimulate people to have their own thoughts and feelings. Mm. So. And finally, what is your life's purpose? I don't know. I feel there is a purpose, that I have a purpose, that we all do. Uh, all, we all have our individual purposes, but I don't know what it is. Um, uh, increasingly, I base my decisions on, I would call it informed intuition. Um, not impulse, but but uh, what I've what I've learned from just patterns I've observed in my own life and in other people's lives. Um, but where I'm going, I don't know. Um, so it can be kind of scary. But it's also really interesting. 
Well, thank you so much, Jerome Gold, for joining us here on the program. This has been uh, this has been a, quite a pleasure, and I thank you for being part of the work that we are doing here to give people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. And I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices. And we hope that uh, you will tune in to our next broadcast, podcast, videocast. And until then, love to lol.